Yeah, we have our regular Ori Zohar on today. I like to keep try to keep up with them, although it's pretty impossible. Because if you say, Ori, what's new with burlap and barrel? Um, there are probably 50 new things. <laughs> I don't know how you fit it all in, Ori. But um, yeah. um, let's let's talk about one of my favorite things is all the development that's gone on with um, Burlap and Barrel Spice Club. Tell our listeners about the Spice Club. Yeah, thank you for having me. And this is Ori, co-founder and co-CEO of Burlap and Barrel. And always happy to be back and always happy to talk to you. Um, and I'm yeah. so glad that you asked about the Spice Club. <laughs> the Spice Club <laughs> is our seasonal spice subscription or seasonal seasoning subscription. I don't know. But um, what we wanted to do is have uh, an option for people that always wanted to get new and interesting spices. And so what we did is we put together this spice club, and it ships four times a year to everyone, so February, May, August, and November, and it's a surprise box. And so we were very much so inspired by our friends at Rancho Gordo who have their bean club, which is inspired by the wine clubs of Napa, where Rancho Gordo is based out of. And with Steve's blessing, because we asked him, (laughs) we put out the Spice Club. And now what we do is every three months, people that subscribe always get four full-size jars of spices. They're always new or new harvests. Um, And then we also include one brand new collaboration item. So maybe it's uh, bitters that's made with our spices. Maybe it's a bar of chocolate or, you know, a granola or or a jam that's made with our saffron. So we've always had brand new things, always from a maker that is probably a maker that you don't know of and that you haven't tried their stuff yet, but that we really think should be on your radar and in your repertoire. Well, I mean, I think that's splendid. I've admired this. And you, you have um, the, the members of the club interact with the comments on uses as well, right? Yeah, so every, every quarter, we, we are now, we have done about three years of Spice Club, and we've learned a lot about it over time. We've gotten better at it. But the Spice Club comes with a free shipping code for if you just want to order something else, uh, we have a free shipping code. We also do a reveal day, and so you're not allowed to talk about what's in the Spice Club until everybody has received their Spice Club. It's not <laughs> a surprise for anyone. So we have a reveal day in our Facebook Spice Forum where everybody can kind of comment and Everybody's very cute where before the reveal day, they always they, they talk about the Spice Club but without revealing. So they say, oh, I love what's in this box, or I used one of the spices <laughs> in my pancakes this morning. So they're, they're trying to figure out where the line is. But also uh-huh. with every Spice Club, we do a call with the maker. So you can join us. We had over 100 people at the last Spice Club call where the Burlap and Barrel team will talk through the spices in the Spice Club. And this past one, uh, we had a, a French onion vinegar with a small and wonderful vinegar company called Lindera. And they made a French onion vinegar specifically for us from our spices. It's kind of a slightly sweet but mostly savory herbal vinegar. Um, it's great in salad dressings, and it's great just as a kind of finishing spritz. I think it needs a little bit of acid. But they came on and talked about the process of making it and what it took to kind of put it all together and where they drew inspiration from. So we really try to make it a whole community event. It's not just about the spices at Spice Club. Right. Now that, uh, what did we have, that, um, the, the French onion what that we just had, Mavin? We had some French onion flavored uh, olive oil, I know that. 
Olive oil, yeah. Ooh. We had French onion flavored olive oil. It was very good. That yeah. that sounds great. And the idea is that this can be a vinegar that sure you can just mix it in a little bit of water and drink it, but but it really was around it's really nice in salad dressing specific that's why I've been using it a lot. But it's also nice kind of in finishing in finishing certain things and now at the Spice Club, we have uh, just a little bit north of 3,500 subscribers, so it's quite an operation. Oh, um, I imagine. We meet every single week because it's now big enough that we can't just like be like, what do we have laying around the warehouse? <laughs> <laughs> we, we very intentionally work with farmers months ahead of time to source spices that will be ready in time for Spice Club because these are big batches. Mm-hmm. Um, we need usually about, about 500 pounds of a spice to get into the Spice Club. We work with collaborators for months on the new thing and the label and all of that. And so it's really, we actually have weekly meetings where me and my co-founder, Ethan, and three or four additional team members from operations to sourcing to importing to to marketing are all together every single week talking about the Spice Club. So it really is quite an involved thing to make sure that what's in there is unique and interesting and fun. Um, And so so it's really a big operation for our company, and and we, we love it. You know, we do a, um, a, a, a fish um, shipment thing, and um, interviewing some of the employees, and we learned that that's their favorite part of their job, is putting together the boxes and selecting what everybody should be getting. And that's what yeah, like yeah. yeah. Well, as yeah. running a company, like, you have, like, I feel like sometimes, like, a band that has their greatest hits, it's like sometimes like everybody wants the cinnamon and has questions about a real cinnamon and we're happy to talk about the real cinnamon all day long or like, you know, any of our top 10 spices, which is where most people really kind of get into the businesses through our cinnamon and our cumin and our garlic and shallot powder and our za'atar. But really the Spice Club lets us do something completely new. And I think as a company, you often can really settle into a routine and you can lose your, your kind of creativity. And so the Spice Club is a challenge. Every three months, we have to put out a box full of brand new things and put it together. And how do they pack? And where do they ship from? And how, who do we work with? And what producers? And all that. So it ends up being a really kind of long-term exercise in creativity and constantly bringing new stuff into the company as if we didn't already have enough of that. We have a funny, but I mean, it does set you apart because the competition, since you initiated um, the, your company, the competition has probably uh, quadrupled, maybe more, huh? Yeah, yeah. There's always new people coming in, and, and honestly, we like it because we're still seeing that most people don't really think about their spices and don't really care about their spices or kind of just buy it you know, from an alphabetized list of their grocery store with no idea on sourcing. So the more companies that are kind of fighting the good fight of talking about how origin matters and that spices should be equitably sourced and that there's a big reward for that, we're always really happy for that. But the Spice Club definitely ends up being a good way to kind of bring it in. And in some cases, there are some producers that have minimums that can't make it below a certain amount or that if we're going to work with them, you know, so like, the Spice Club ends up helping us also bring things that maybe otherwise we wouldn't have been able to have on the site. The Spice Club ends up being the reason why it gets to our audience and to our site. And then if people like it, it becomes uh, something that we keep in our regular rotation. But just to give you an example, um, we brought in Zatar from Palestine, the Zatar Spice Blend. 
And so that's the za'atar leaves plus sesame seeds plus sumac and a couple of other things. But we also, just for fun, while we were already bringing this, we brought in the za'atar oregano, just the za'atar leaves themselves, the leaves of the herb. And so we didn't know what to do with it. We brought it in because we thought it was a really great ingredient. And it ended up being the perfect amount to put into the spice club. So all the people that have maybe had za'atar, the blend many times in their lives, I bet you 90% of those people had never just tried the za'atar leaves by themselves or these like fuzzy little green leaves that take up a lot of space but give this really, really wonderful kind of savory, some between an oregano or a, or a hyssop or a thyme kind of flavor. Yeah, see, I, I um, never I bet, really, yeah, I've never yeah. actually tasted that. I mean, I've read about it and, and you know, differentiated it from the blend we all know. Although yours, um, you point out that yours is different from from the usual, um, it's much more authentic than the, what you usually buy when you buy Zatar. And we use a lot of that, yeah. What, what do you use it on? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's it's, the right it's, answer. It's, it's great on beets. It's great on lamb. It's great on everything. The, the one that would probably surprise you most is fish. Yeah. Fish, yeah, said, yeah, lots of fish. We eat a lot of fish, so. It does, does a great job with fish. Yeah. Yeah, so, that sounds great. Um, I think that's where people always ask how to use za'atar. And honestly, if you don't know, just take a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of za'atar and mix it together and dip your bread in it. But I actually oh, yeah, really like it great. also on fish. And I was in Portland, Oregon, and somebody had done a za'atar croissant where they kind of took a croissant and just rolled it in za'atar, and it looked... It looked crazy, but it was delicious. Well, you know, I mean, that's probably not too different a concept from uh, how I was raised um, with uh, fresh from the oven bread dipped in good quality olive oil uh, and sprinkled with um, oregano. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's where, like, a lot of herbs are. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. in, I grew up in Israel, but across the Middle East, uh, that's where za'atar is very frequently uh, put together with pitas and flatbreads and all kinds of things yeah. like that, even like rolling a bagel in it. So, yeah, the, the herbs plus bread is a real, is a real classic uh, combination, especially when it's dipped in olive oil. Oh, yes. Um, and now, if, if you found the people in general... Uh, since you started, because you, your newsletter is, is great. I mean, it's just, it explains so, so full of information. Have you found since you started this business that the market has become much more sophisticated about spices? Because that's part of you your mission, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think in our first few years, there were some intrepid home cooks and professional chefs that really cared about where their food was coming from and not just from farmer's markets or not just knowing their butcher or their fisherman, but they knew their cheesemonger. And they kind of thought that the whole supply chain should be, should be sourced well. And we, we agree with that. And so those are the folks that we said, hey, single origin spices, like same reason you go to the farmer's market, this is the same reason why you should care about where your spices come from. And so oh, yeah. we, we started with a group of kind of intrepid home cooks but slowly over time, more and more people are, are understanding that. And I think us plus all the single origin spice companies are still a pretty small fraction of, of the world of spices, but serious home cooks, are, we're now a household name for them. And so this is, still, this is still new for us, and we're still expanding, and 
that's one of the reasons why we wanted to go onto Shark Tank is because so many people watch the show Shark Tank um, and, and we knew that we would get a chance to share our pitch directly with them on primetime how, how, television. And so how, how, we need to find more go? ways. How did it go? Yeah, yeah we've, we've uh, talked about this before. Did we talk about it? it w- yeah. It went really well. I think we might have even talked about it before the episode aired, but the episode aired in April uh, of this year. We had filmed it back in September, um, and it went really well. We, we went on air. We got an offer from Mr. Wonderful, but we, we couldn't take it. And honestly, the most important thing that we got out of it was being on national TV. And so a lot of people, even while it was airing, went to our site and so now all of a sudden, a lot of new people got to know about who Burlap and Barrel is, got to place their first order. And we recently looked at the numbers since it's been about four months since that show aired. Um, yeah. and, and the customers that came in through Shark Tank on average spent more than our typical customer and on average came back to reorder more often than our typical oh, customer. Right. So it's a really good sign that Shark Tank people are, are serious about their, their spices. Oh, good. Wait. You know, the, the people um, get kind of bitchy about uh, social media, but I've done it a couple different ways. Um, I've either gone on there uh, with announcement of the shows or not gone on there, and then I've tracked the difference in listenership, and it makes a huge difference being on, on yeah. social media. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be like that, but it is. <laughs> In the reality, oh, but is, I think is. that's something that every early stage entrepreneur struggles with. Is maybe you have the best product in the world, but if nobody yeah. knows about it, then you're dead in the water. And a lot of people rely on venture capital for that. And we're a bootstrapped company, and we've never raised money. And so I think one of the biggest challenges for us and any other new company is that you're not yet in ten thousand grocery stores. Nobody knows who you are yet, so you have to get pretty clever <laughs> about what it is. Advertising is expensive, and distribution yeah. is expensive, so you kind of have to make your own news. And so that was part of what Shark Tank was about. Well, that's great. Um, now, uh, the, do, you, do you have a, a profile of your, um, of your average market person? I mean, who, who, who really is your biggest supporter? You know, chefs, I mean, what? So, yeah, we we are right now about 80% of our money comes from home cooks, from from orders, Mm -hmm. come directly from home cooks ordering on our website. And then Mm -hmm. the other 20% is between food manufacturers, restaurants, and grocery stores. Um, And we're, we're getting to know our customers, and they're lovely and loyal. But one of the funny things that we realized a couple of years ago is that 10% of our customers have AOL.com or Hotmail.com email addresses, which gives me a clue that maybe in the like you know 40 year old plus range because yeah. the, the the youths are all on Gmail or or, or whatever. Exactly. But, but but we know that our audience is a little bit older than average, and we love it. And what we realized is that those people are great because they're cooking more at home. They might maybe have a little bit of more disposable income because maybe their kids are older if they have kids or maybe they're out of you know, the home or all that. Um, and we also realize that, that they're living outside of major cities because if you're in a big city, and we have plenty of people in cities, 
But if you're in the big city, you go out to eat a lot more. You have lots of great stores nearby. But right. if you're living a little bit outside, you don't want to drive for half an hour to be able to kind of find, find good things. And so it's really easy. We ship to the whole country. So those are the people that we love, and, and, and we're happy for them to be our customers forever. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I told you this before, but um, I, I guess it, it's kind of started, of course, with the pandemic, and I kind of got used to being able to order online uh, groceries and produce and stuff. And um, uh, the one I, I ordered from actually uh, uses your seasonings and spices. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's supposed to be only local um, product. And, and I'm, yeah. I, of course, I, I know you're not just local, <laughs> but I mean the <laughs> fact that, some, that this person found you for this kind of really local, regional at best uh, company for uh, food delivery, ordering and delivery. Yeah, we saw that kind of in the pandemic. There were so many supply chains that broke down in the pandemic, and I think most people were just used to buying their spices at their grocery store, and they couldn't anymore. So, right. so the question was, where do you go? And a lot of people found us, and we are a small business, and we are a social enterprise, and we've even worked with some chefs that only source local ingredients to source our single-origin spices because what they said is the U.S., very few spices grow in the U.S., aside from garlic and chili peppers. And I know some folks growing, there's a handful of farmers growing saffron and things like that and some herbs. But most spices grow in tropical and subtropical climates, and yeah, so a lot of chefs, even and people, even for local, will go for a locally, like like a, a small business and a well sourced product if they can't have a, a domestic alternative. Yeah, uh, what was the the book? Um, the authors we just interviewed they wrote um, a book called "History of the World in Ten Recipes," was it or a hundred recipes? Give <laughs> hundred recipes. Rather, yeah. the history of the world, right? Uh, yeah, and um, of course... It was ten dinners. Ten dinners, maybe, was whatever it was. They did, um, they, they, they did a lot with um, the whole, whole development, social development and histories based around spices. Interesting. I mean, they did yeah. the Spice Road, but then there were all these other things that showed a great deal of social interaction as, as um, all these different civilizations developed and intermingled. But the, yeah, the so much of the story of the world is told through spices, is so much exactly. of the Silk Road, to the East India Company, often very violent and often very exploitative. But, yeah. but spices are what people traveled the world for and went to discover new lands for. And with that, right. they brought some of their own food and, and cuisine mixed and intermingled and formed a new thing. And it's really interesting to study the kind of history of colonialization, but also just world exploration through the pursuit of spices. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, now, there's another component to your business that uh, you, you mentioned single origin spices. Um, you might want to explain that a little bit to our listeners. And also uh, some of the distinctions in the um, specialty food spice um, slash spice industry, what you do differently from other spice purveyors. Yeah, most spice companies in the U.S., and this is what it's been like historically, are just buying from spice importers. 
um, rather than actually sourcing the spices themselves. So they're trying to pick the best spices from a set of gigantic importers, and those importers are buying from people that are exporting, who are buying from people who are packaging spices for export, who are buying people like, so basically normally spices come from thousands and thousands of farmers. You don't know if it's good or bad. You don't know if it's this year's lot or last year's lot. And so what ends up happening is you get this kind of like blended average, and often it's not a very good one. Um, we like to say that often in the grocery store, your spices best years are, are behind them already. <laughs> so so yeah. what single origin is, is a very similar thing about why you care about single origin chocolate or tea or coffee or why you go to the farmer's market. The idea that single origin gives us traceability back to a farmer or a cooperative of farmers working together. And rather than good and bad getting mixed together, we work with the farmer to be their own direct exporter. So these are all entrepreneurial, ambitious farmers that are growing incredible spices. And now instead of selling into the commodity market, they're drying, they're cleaning, they're grinding the spices themselves and preparing them for export, which we hold their hands through that process. And so in that process, we get access to really fresh, really high-quality spices that haven't been mixed or diluted or taking this crazy journey around the world in order to get to us. And so because the farmers are excellent, they're growing excellent spices, and because we work with them to be their own exporters, we get their spices in as direct of a process as possible. And so that's single-origin spices. People tell us that trying our spices is kind of like having a, 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 an apple at a grocery store that's been in cold storage for 6 to 12 months and has this waxy <laughs> coating on it, and then going to the farmer's market and having an apple that was picked that morning. The spices just taste much more like what, what you think it should taste like. Um, and because they're all tied to origin, they're often done in traditional ways and traditional varietals that are very close to the origin in the way they've always been grown. And like an example of that is our royal cinnamon that comes from cinnamon tree bark. But instead of harvesting the trees much younger, this is cinnamon tree bark from trees that are 15 to 20 years old from central Vietnam. And so not only is it an older cinnamon, but it's a varietal of cinnamon that's the highly prized Vietnamese Luroroy cinnamon that is very sweet and a little bit spicy that you won't find anywhere else. Now, are, you tr are you troubled by all the rioting and all the nasty political stuff that's, that's happening? Se seems to yeah, there's, there's political unrest. Yeah, I... I I think, the, I think everybody's concerned about the, the political unrest and global warming and all of that because, you know, a lot of businesses today talk about pivoting or changing suppliers or things like that. But when you're a farmer and you've been growing cinnamon trees for, you know, five, six, ten generations, uh, you can't just pick up and move your business. And so a lot of farmers are seeing erratic weather, which is impacting the harvests, which is impacting the yields and all of that and they're really doing everything they can to kind of control for it. But I can tell you that having healthy soil, which a lot of long-term farmers are working on, especially our partners, is really key to allowing, you know, the, the plants to kind of survive everything that's going on. Um, and with political unrest, we have, we have issues too because there's always changes. So we just are getting, we're today, literally today, our shipment of this harvest of the wild mountain cumin should be leaving Afghanistan. And so our main contact there has fled to Pakistan. We can't send money into Afghanistan anymore. So we have to rely on an informal network of lenders 
to be able really? to get the money in cash into Afghanistan. And so there's always, you know, these situations create creativity and finding ways to work outside of the established systems. But we had to work with, with a bunch of folks to get money into Afghanistan in non-traditional ways. Um, and so the whole well, process is really Your partner is really experienced since he lives in Afghanistan, right? That's and, right. So Ethan, my, my business partner, he, he was in, yeah, he was an aid worker in Afghanistan for a number of years and met his wife, a fellow aid worker, and she comes from an Afghan family. And so he knew the land, and the, one of the people that works with us used to work at the nonprofit where, where they were all working together. So, yeah, it takes local experts to be able to navigate all these rules and all these requirements. And even more recently, another example is the earthquakes in Turkey um, took down oh, the warehouse true. of our Urfa chili supplier. Oh, and no. so the warehouse got flattened in the earthquake, and so we just, we just made a commitment that we would buy a big order from them as soon as they got their warehouse up and running. And as soon as they did, we put in an order for 2,000 kilograms of Urfa chili, all prepaid, just to kind of make a point that we're here and we're good partners and we're happy to pay ahead of time. But we really go to great efforts to just align. What the farmers want is they want to, make, they want to be able to pay themselves and their employees and build businesses and all that. And we want to be there to support that. So we try to find ways to put money down um, instead of asking for terms. And we try to find ways to just work with partners in ways that help, help the partner farmers in ways that help build their own businesses. I'll tell you, I mean, it's, it's uh, <laughs> intentions are there. It's, it's getting way, way out of hand. I mean, I mean we just had the, uh, relatives that escape with the clothes on their back from um, 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 Maui, Lahaina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maui. I mean, it, no, no warning whatsoever. I mean, they literally had the clothes on their back and in their car, and then yeah. got out. Yeah, and and but, even when when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, we that day sent money to our partner farmers there to prepay for some spices in the future because we were worried about the financial instability and the security of that region. So we figured it's better to try to get money in there sooner rather than later and that we would figure it all out in the end because we trust them and, and that it would be okay. But we've, we've often, this is something that, that other companies don't do because your cash is so valuable to, to you being able to pay your employees and run your own business. But we learned that working with spice farmers we had to put our money where our mouth was. And if we wanted to ask for them to work with us, we had to show them goodwill and that we, were, that we could afford to pay them during the harvest. And in some cases, even during the planting of the seeds, way, way ahead of when we'd actually receive the spices in order to work together in this new model. Well, it is a new model, and you're very smart to be doing that um, because a lot of, of, of suppliers are going to be forced to drop out if things continue the way they are. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I everybody's watch. asking themselves these existential questions, and I think we take our food systems for granted as always existing and always right. will exist, but we're yeah. learning how, how they can be very fragile. I mean, I, I keep watching uh, Jose Andres, is a friend of ours, but I can't believe, I mean, there, he can't be everywhere. He just can't be. I mean, right now, I guess he's in Maui, but um, there was recently. But there's so many hotspots all over the world now 
it's all happening simultaneously, which is not yeah. the kind of wave after wave that we used to expect. And, and that's why we also need an evolution of businesses and business models is not these extractive things that just take money out of the system and put it in the pockets of, of the executives and directors. And that's why we also need systems that, that we, we're a social enterprise, so we really try our goal is to connect smallholder farmers to high-value markets. So we do that by helping them build their own businesses and us being the conduit to, to say, yes, we will, we will teach you to be your own exporter and we will make a market for your spices so that a lot more value stays at origin. And so this is why we're a fan of any other single origin spice company and any other social enterprise that's looking at how capitalism has kind of served us uh, in, in the long term and, and is trying to kind of evolve that model in a way that is much more sustainable in like the, the broadest meaning of the word sustainable. Oh, it's always so good talking to you. Or you, because you, you, anyhow, we're always on the same wavelength. Um, before we go, though, um, get real specific to tell people how to sign up for the Spice Club. Yeah. So if you're if you're in the market right now, come check us out at Burlap and Barrel. That's B U R L A P A N D B A R R E L dot com. Burlap and Barrel. Uh, we have over 100 spices on the site, all with stories and the origin and how they came to be and who grew them. And right now we're shipping out um, the August Spice Club, but very soon we're going to switch over to preparing for the November Spice Club, which is a beautiful gift. And you can also even prepay for a year of the Spice Club if you want to get all four shipments in the coming year. And so come check us out, Burlap and Barrel, and check out the Spice Club. It's a surprise, and you're going to absolutely love it. <laughs> You're wonderful, Ori. Hello <laughs> to Ethan, and thank you for talking to us. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you, honey. Bye bye. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Grace Lynn, um, you've won so many awards, um, Newbury, Caldecott, um, you know, these are absolute masterful prizes for uh, children's books and illustrations. And, and you, you wrote what we're going to talk about today, the Chinese menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. And you did all the illustrations the whole thing is just, the whole book is just totally charming. And uh, oh, what, a, what a great publication. Um, you answered a number of questions um, in, in your different sections. Um, how did you select the dishes you were going to talk about, like the most um, popular dishes, or how did you do that? Um, you know, it's a mixture of many different things. So, you know, Chinese menu is uh, divided just like a menu, where it's like appetizers, chef specials, desserts, side orders. <laughs> um, so, so basically, I took those sections of a, of a menu, and um, I I looked at many menus of a Chinese restaurant and saw what 
is what is common in most Chinese restaurants in the United States. And um, I kind of cross-reference that with this with the dishes that I knew stories of already, and um, and I also. Uh, searched out some new stories, and I also just picked stories that I thought um, people would really find interesting. Yeah, so it was yeah. a mixture of all of those things. Now, what's the real story on Marco Polo? Did he, <laughs> did he, did, did he go there first and bring stuff back, or did, 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 well, did he you know, collect pizza and, and, and reinvent it in Italy? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's such an intriguing character. Yes, he is. Well, there's two stories that mention Marco Polo in my book. Um, the first one is the myth of pizza and scallion pancakes. And this is yeah. pretty much a myth that has been shown to be not true. <laughs> but it's a, it's a myth that, that lives on and that people enjoy. Uh, but it's pretty much not true with the idea that Marco Polo came to China and he enjoyed scallion pancakes very, very much. And when he returned to Italy, he really wanted to have scallion pancakes again. But he, since he had only eaten them and never baked, made them, he didn't know uh, how to make them. And he got all these chefs to try to make scallion pancakes. Didn't work out, but they did make the pizza. Like, that's the big myth. Um, so um, okay, good, that is, good, unfortunately, good. that unfortunately is not true. However, however, there is a good possibility that gelato or ice cream was inspired by Marco Polo's journey to China because the Chinese knew how to freeze ice hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, anyone in Europe. And so they had, um, when Marco Polo came to China, it was under Mongol rule and um, uh, the Han Chinese, uh, the people, the Chinese people that are usually in charge, it was, when it wasn't in, under Mongol rule, they don't really drink or eat a lot of milk, but Mongolians did. And um, because the Mongolians liked milk, uh, they would be very upset when their milk was, um, uh, uh, what is it, not rotten, <laughs> when, when it goes bad. Spoiled, that's the word, thank you. Spoiled, <laughs> when, yeah. they, when it was spoiled. And uh, so uh, to, keep their, to keep Kublai Khan and their Mongol rulers happy, the, Chinese, the Han Chinese, instead of freezing water, froze milk. And so when Marco Polo came to China uh, during the Mongol rule, he most likely uh, was treated to ice milk, the thing invented by, for the Mongol rulers. And very likely... Uh, Marco Polo took this idea of frozen milk back to Italy, and it slowly, possibly, probably turned into ice cream and gelato. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the, I wanted to say that you're, this book is even more remarkable by something you just alluded to about the stories, the myth. The, the, there's so much the stuff is so ancient, and there's so much myth built around all these stories there had it been a really difficult research project for you to find out or try to track down the real stories behind all these different uh, dishes. Yeah, well, um, I had the idea for this book all the way back in 2004. I had um, created a children's picture book uh, for, like, kindergartners, uh, first graders on fortune cookies. 
And I had done a little bit of research on fortune cookies, and I had found out that the fortune cookie is a completely um, Asian-American invention. So uh, people in China consider the fortune cookie an American cookie. And so uh, after I found found this out, I would tell people that, and they would always say – they would always say, oh, so fortune cookies aren't even really Chinese? And they would be, um, they'd be, they'd always be kind of disgusted at that. And I always felt really bad <laughs> for the fortune cookie. <laughs> and uh, honestly, and I kind of identified a bit with the fortune cookie because um, I was born here in the United States. Um, but I've had a very difficult um, relationship with my identity early on. Uh, very, as a child, I really didn't want to be Asian. And... Um, and so I kind of rejected my heritage very early on, and only as I grew into adulthood did I try to embrace it. And so I kind of really empathized with the fortune cookie because I felt like a lot of people could say that about me, like, she's not really Chinese. And so um, I really wanted to do this book because I felt I mean, like... Have you, have you thought of going on the stage? <laughs> And and telling the story. <laughs> hey, well, it's just, it's, the, it's such a delightful way of speaking it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Though I have to, admit, I I am very well practiced. <laughs> um, so wait, uh, yeah. So, but you, oh, you, you grew into your your uh, identity. Yeah, and so um, anyway, so that made me want to do this book. Um, and so since 2004, um, I've been collecting stories uh, for this book, honestly. Um, uh, a lot of them have just been stories from my parents, from relatives, uh, like badly, badly written English translations, <laughs> things like that. Um, but for this book, I, uh, when we finally decide to go forth with publication, I um, hired – a uh, research assistant. She was a she was a student in Chinese studies at Smith College, and she really helped me out on all the research you you were asking about. So uh, I have to admit that I relied on her quite a bit. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, you you really don't know. I mean, there's so many variations of all these, and so much of it is myth. It had been a really difficult task to put it together, but you have just the right light tone. And I wonder if this is a, an, an lucidity about it. I wonder if this is because of your experience writing children's books. Um, I, I would say probably yes, um, because children are the most uh, honest of critics. Exactly. <laughs> if they don't like it, they will tell you. If they are bored, they will leave. Uh, they Patients in general, is not a child's strongest strength. So I think that um, writing for them is very good discipline for an author. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very jealous. I mean, a friend of mine and I, when we had four-year-old kids, uh, uh, attempted to write this book, and um, it was um, the animal banquet. I mean, the characters were wonderful, and I did some of the illustrations. Um, the... Uh, uh, the caterer who did all the cleanup was was a buzzard, you know. And I loved drawing that buzzard. Yeah, it was great. And, and but we we got the nicest uh, rejection letters. But we <laughs> the hardest part was sending out all these uh, copies to all these potential publishers. 
and only yeah. to get back very nice things. But but the thing that was, we had talking animals in it, and they were out of style. <laughs> mm. Yeah, these things kind of go in and out. But nowadays, it's so much luckier with the internet. You don't have to send things out like that anymore. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, we do packages. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I loved your your introductory chapter here on chopsticks. Um, Peter's heard the story a million times, but uh, I was forced to learn to use chopsticks effectively when I was a starving graduate student because <laughs> uh, one of my professors was married to this Chinese woman who was a fantastic cook, but she would only invite the starving graduate students if if they could effectively use chopsticks to eat. Oh wow. <laughs> so we all got what a to way it. To you know? <laughs> so you learned, I might you not learned, have passed that. Yeah. You, know, you said you never did it right, but I guess you do now. <laughs> um yeah, no, I mean some of these uh, these like who doesn't want to know the origins of taking duck I mean, <laughs> I mean, but that's a complicated one. There's so much tradition involved there, and so much, yes. um, yeah, so much symbolism. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a difficult one to tackle. In fact, you gave it a lot of space in your book. <laughs> yes. Well, well taking duck is. It's really amazing to 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 see when it's when it's up 5 p.m. in Chinatown, in San Francisco. All the ladies of the household are there getting, getting their picking ducks yeah. with, 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 with a pour of sauce to go with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and you can see all the ducks hanging in the window and things like that. Exactly. So those are yeah, yeah. taking ducks, but, but they are those smoked ducks. <laughs> you know, I'm talking to you about this, uh, the, your chapter on the picking duck, and, and you said the things you have to do in China is walk the Great Wall, visit the Forbidden City, and eat Peking duck. I'm looking at right in front of me on the wall um, above my desk is a photograph of my mother touching the Great Wall in China. Mm, how beautiful. Yeah, yes, I mean, so it's, it just I just looked up and there it was. I'm so, it, it, that's sort of mythic and poetic, isn't it? Yeah. So she accomplished one of the three. But the funny, funny part about it, sweetheart, you remember you you told me this, or whether Nora told me this. She, 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 when she was in China, she lived on a diet of some kind of crackers. Oh yes, she, she, she she never (laughs) ate the food. Yeah. She was. Oh, that's too bad. Those chickens or anything like that. You know, another (laughs) curious thing for me, I never understood everybody's fascination with beef and broccoli, except it tastes very good. But you, you agree with me. They, don't, they didn't grow broccoli in no. China. Well, I mean, they do have a broccoli. It's just not the same broccoli. Right. Uh, the broccoli that we have is Italian. And so what we consider beef and broccoli, you know, the bro- they, they have beef and broccoli in China. That's a very traditional dish. But broccoli... Is very different there. It's a much yes. different, it's a completely different vegetable. <laughs> so, um, you know, something else that everybody wants to uh, to know about, um, and you run through that, is 
what exactly is chop suey? I mean, is it American? Is it uh, inspired by Chinese food? What, what is chop suey? And we used to get um, well, that and also those canned, what were those, um, <laughs> like little sticks of, of um, potatoes, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, there really is a recipe, sapsui, sapsua, but, uh, which is probably what chop suey was inspired by. Um, you know, as I said um, in the book, and I've said many times, you know, the Chinese food that we have here, it has roots in China, but, you know, it's not anything like what you would actually eat in China because it's all been adapted to, for American palates as well as American ingredients. So we were just talking about broccoli. Like they could not get that kind of Chinese broccoli here in the United States. So they, they decided to substitute it with what the broccoli they could get here. Uh, so, uh, so that's why this book is really about American Chinese food, not really Chinese Chinese right. food. Um, and so Chapsui is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, there's story of uh, that it was immigrant, the story, the myth, which people, uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion of whether or not it's true or not, (laughs) but the the myth (laughs) is that um, during the gold rush, uh, you know, Chinese immigrants came to the United States, and uh, when they got here, hoping to find gold, like so many many immigrants and so many people looking for gold mountains, uh, they did not find Gold Mountain. There was nothing, there was no gold, and most of the immigrants did not even have enough money to go back to China. And so they were all trying to eke out a living here in in the United States. And one way they eked out a living was to open up Chinese restaurants. Um, And the story goes that uh, one restaurant tour, you know, restaurants being like these uh, tents, (laughs) because it was in the gold field, these restaurant tents, um, but uh, what the story goes that a, a group of drunk miners came in late at night after the restaurant was closed um, and demanded to be served. And the chef was uh, very, uh, there was a lot of violence against um, Chinese immigrants um, at the time. And so the Chinese chef knew better than to say no. Yet, however, he did not really, he did not have any food left uh, and any ingredients. And so he just basically took all his scraps and he took all his scraps and he stir fried it and he served it to them and, uh, and they loved it. And so they asked what it was and um, he said it was chop suey, which in, um, in the Chinese, the Cantonese, Taiwanese dialect, is is saying odd scraps. <laughs> of, course, <laughs> of course, the miners did not know that that meant odd scraps, and so it was kind of that chef's little joke on them. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. Um, were any of these stories like surprising to you? I mean, you didn't expect or. Did you learn a lot from this research? I did, actually, um, because, as I said, I had been collecting a lot of stories over the years. Um, and some of them uh, I, uh, I found out were kind of my father's imagination. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and uh, <laughs> some were just... Uh, and some were just so fascinating that I'd never heard of um, that were better than the ones that I had collected. Um, 
the ones that I loved. Oh, actually, that I found so much about were about tea. Um, you know, oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Talk to us about so many, tea. Yeah, there's so many stories about tea, um, and so uh, like the my daughter's favorite story in the whole book is um, about white hair silver needle tea, which is one of the rarest teas in China. It's a quite a delicacy, um, and it's all about. It's all about this tea that was supposed to cure sickness, uh, yet this evil Chinese dragon, which is actually quite rare in Chinese culture. Most of the time, dragon. Yeah, right. Said, but uh, there was this evil Chinese dragon that would was uh, would not let anybody get this tea, this special tea, um, and uh, everybody who went up the mountain, uh, everyone who went up the mountain would hear a sound and uh, would turn around and turn into stone, until finally one girl. Uh, filled her ears with rice cakes uh, so she couldn't hear anything and she climbed up the mountain and she did not turn around because she couldn't hear anything (laughs) and she was able to get to this special tea um, and defeat the the evil dragon so uh, there's well your illustration for that is fabulous your illustration for that is fabulous I mean you talk about created an evil dragon that one is really (laughs) 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 he is very, very malignant. He's just yeah. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> so we're, all of your tea stories are interesting because, I mean, it's such an ancient beverage, and and your your explanations of why it became so um, associated with with eating Chinese food are interesting too. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, just the the I I was taken surprised by you said that. Uh, originally and more authentically, a Chinese meal would have, instead of the ongoing uh, cups of tea, would have the soup. Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, tea was, um, it, tea was, they didn't have beverages with their meals. Soup was kind of their beverage. Uh, tea was actually started as like a medicinal tonic, right? <laughs> and then yeah, slowly right. it turned into, slowly it turned into like, they they would have it as like a, almost like, a separate pastime, you know, was to drink tea. Um, you know, the the Chinese um, did not trust their water supply, so that's why they never right. really drank cold water. It was always boiled water, um, and then which led to tea or alcohol. <laughs> so uh-huh. it was always wine or tea were the big were the big beverages that they drank, and um, during meals it was soup. Yeah. But your 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 story about jasmine tea is also quite lovely. It's so poetic. Yeah. The, so the story of jasmine tea is about this tea tea vendor tea peddler who is always searching for for a, a unusual or delicious and new tea, and um, he was. He was very obsessed with tea, but he was still kind-hearted. And um, he, uh, on one of his travels, um, he saw a girl who had been stranded. Uh, her father had died, and, and he, she had no way of getting back. So he, he gave her some money and then moved on. And uh, when he came back to the inn uh, where he had first seen her, he found many years later, he found that the poor girl had died, but she had left him a package and to thank him. And when he brought that package home, he found out that it was a beautiful new tea, jasmine tea, uh, that was uh, the first of its kind. So, Yep. 
So you, you have, um, I mean, dumplings, I, I've learned over the years, uh, are common in every single cuisine in the world. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I guess Chinese dumplings are very special, uh, as are the, uh, the difference now you explain between egg rolls and spring rolls. And, and they're, <laughs> they're one's really authentic and the other one not so, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, authentic is a, is a funny word to use. I mean, it's authentically Asian-American, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. but one is probably older than the other. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. The spring roll, the egg roll is definitely an offshoot of, uh, the egg roll is definitely an offshoot of the spring roll. Um, and dumplings, you know, there's so many different kinds of dumplings. Uh, yeah. You know, the dumplings that we uh, usually think of at the, uh, at the Chinese restaurant. Um, those are the ones, uh, you, you may call them jiaozi, or um, maybe you might call them potstickers, because um, uh, those, uh, if you look closely at them, you'll see the shape of them. They look a lot like a person's ear, and that was done on purpose yeah. because the person who invented those dumplings was actually an ancient Chinese doctor who invented them as a medicine to cure people's frostbitten ears. He saw people in his village were suffering from frostbitten ears. So he went home and he made the dumpling. He filled it with all these like warming herbs and meats. And he thought if people ate all these warming herbs and meat, it would uh, heat them up on the inside and cure their frostbitten ears. And so he made these dumplings in, in the shape of an ear to remind them what this medicine was for. Now, uh, you know, I don't know if the dumplings really cured anybody's frostbitten ears, but people really love the dumplings, so they kept eating them. And that's <laughs> exactly. why we have the dumpling today. <laughs> yeah. Now, the other thing that's always fascinated me, primarily because I can't imagine why anybody would want to eat bird's nest soup. In fact, I've never <laughs> had it. I would never order it. <laughs> well, but you present it in a, in, in a way that makes it makes it palatable. <laughs> well, <laughs> Tell nowadays, us about that. If you go, yeah, if you go to Chinatown and you order bird's nest soup, it's probably not really bird's nest. Now they have like, you know, right. made it out of uh, like some kind of dried pasta. <laughs> yeah, but it used to, they used to have it. I mean, it used to be um, real bird nests, right? Yes, the original ones, and um, probably if you go to China, and you know you can tell if it's a real thing by looking at the price. If the price yeah, is right. astronomical, <laughs> if the price is astronomical, then you know it's a re- probably a real the real bird's nest. Um, if it's affordable, it's probably a fake like a fake pasta <laughs> thing that they right. made. But but the original um, original bird's nest soup use uses real bird's nest. Um, that, it was created uh, when um, it was created when these uh, the, a ship a ship was stranded a Chinese ship was stranded on this rocky on this rocky island and they were starving for food but they saw these um, these swallows flying up into these high rocks and they're like there must be food there and they climbed up these very very high rocks and the only thing they could see were the swallows' nests so. Uh, desperate, they took the nests and they brought it back to the crew. They boiled it and they ate it, and they actually found it quite delicious and also quite invigorating. And with that kind of yeah. with that in them, they were able to survive and continue on their journey. Yes. So, so um, it's kind I of got this myth of being this magic food that gives you strength. <laughs> yeah.
Now, of course, everybody's going to want to know about the general Sal. <laughs> I mean, I, I, just, I, I, I always found him very objectionable. I mean, the name. <laughs> it sounded so anglicized. But you, you write that there's actually a connection. Yeah, so there really is, many people pronounce it so many different ways. Like some people call it General Cho, some people call it General Chow, some people call it General Cho, which just goes to show how adaptable uh, this American Chinese food is, right? Um, so, but there really was a General Cho um, who was a great general in China, um, a very, a very uh, uh, I guess you would say very violent, but a very successful general in China. Um, and, uh, but he never ate this dish. <laughs> he had nothing to do with this dish at all. Um, he <laughs> probably, it's not even really known if he likes chicken because it's General Toast chicken. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was created by a chef in um, Taiwan. And he just wanted to pick a name. He just wanted to give his new, uh, his new chicken dish a name that sounded um that sounded that had gravitas to him right <laughs> that sounded yeah. full of respect and uh one of his local heroes in hunan was general Cho, um and so he decided he would name his chicken general Cho's chicken <laughs> right after his his um his hometown hero and so that's how general it became general Cho's chicken now, well was he, was, um, he the, was he the general who wrote a book about making war uh, no, not that one. <laughs> Some, somewhere other was, some, was somebody, in, some, somebody in China who wrote a definitive book. Yeah, the how you, the, how you wage war, but I don't remember. The yeah, name. the art, of, the art of war. Um, there you go. It was not General okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tso. You have a whole explanation here. I got a little nostalgic, by the way, when we hit this dessert section. I'm not a dessert person anyhow. But I haven't had um, an orange segment served up with my bill in a Chinese restaurant (laughs) for years. What happened to that tradition? We always had um, a cut-up orange. Really, I, we still get that here. Um, I suppose it depends on where your restaurant is, uh, but maybe they've stopped doing it in certain places. I mean, maybe they've, maybe the prices of oranges have gone up. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're high now, right now, actually. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, the uh, I'm not sure I fully understand these the, the fortune cookie thing. I mean, how did it get to be such a big thing? Yeah, the fortune cookie is a fascinating story, uh, and it's got many, many like twists and turns about it, uh, because it, like I said earlier, it is probably uh, the first, one of the first truly Asian American foods, because it was definitely invented here in the United States, and it actually probably was invented by a Japanese American, um, and the Japanese American, and uh, unfortunately, Funny. because of, yeah, because of World War II, um, that he, that that Japanese American was not able to kind of capitalize on his invention, and instead, all the Chinese restaurateurs kind of grabbed his invention and sold <laughs> sold it at their stores, um, at their restaurants. Um, but it was 
it caught on really quickly, probably because of World War II with all the soldiers coming in and out of uh, San Francisco where the fortune cookie was probably invented. Um, and they probably ate at Chinese restaurants that served the fortune cookie. And uh, they definitely me- remembered it because who can forget the fortune cookie, right? <laughs> and then they <laughs> asked for it at their hometown uh, Chinese restaurants. And, of course, all the way in New York and New Jersey, they were happy to – uh, they are always happy to make their customers um, satisfied, so they quickly adapted the fortune cookie as well. So it became something – the fortune cookie became ubiquitous with Chinese restaurants, even though it's not Chinese, um, and it's, it was, uh, it's actually Japanese-American. <laughs> Isn't that funny, huh? So and, yeah. and then you have, of course, your, your final illustration here, your takeout container <laughs> it's become yeah. so iconic they now have them in mm-hmm. it's ceramic you know you yeah. can buy a ceramic one just like that <laughs> yes i know i feel like i could do a whole book just on the history of the takeout container probably <laughs> yeah probably you know i did a, a, an article for a magazine and um, i remember being so appalled, I opened my, my wonderful refrigerator at one point, and the whole thing was filled with these little awful containers. <laughs> <laughs> so, now what, what were you most surprised about, Rabbit, about the, the, the backstories of some of these dishes? Well, the, see, the, the funny part about it is I, I grew up in England. You probably, whether you can tell that or not, listener, but uh, Ch- Chinese restaurants were, were, were popular but they were made up of traditional English foods. They didn't have anything to, anything to do with China. They, the proprietors, I guess, were, were Chinese, and they served whatever they thought the local population wanted. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, when I wrote this book, the copy editor said, you should call it American Chinese food, not Chinese American food. Because American Chinese food means it's Chinese food that's been influenced by Ameri- Americans. It's like Chinese American food is actually uh, Chinese, it's, it's American food that's been influenced by chi- Chinese, by China. So it would be like a Chinese restaurateur uh, serving serving here in the United States, we'd be serving, well, I guess we'd say hot dogs or, or hamburgers with a little Asian twist, like a little Chinese <laughs> twist. That would be oh, what would be considered Chinese-American food. So maybe in England, it would be considered English-American, uh, <laughs> uh, it would be Chinese-English food, because English uh, maybe the Chinese, the Chinese uh, restaurateurs might have put a little Chinese twist onto the um, English food. Uh, what is a traditional, all I can think of, as traditional English food is like bangers and mash, <laughs> which, um, mashed, mashed potatoes, yeah, green green peas out of a can, <laughs> yeah, and maybe they put some kind of Chinese twist to it. I'm not sure what, but uh, that would make it that would make it uh, Chinese English food. <laughs> well, the time, when, the time when I would would have been eating it, I didn't didn't go eating Chinese food. I could. <laughs> I, I went. I went home and ate whatever my mother gave me. Yeah. <laughs> well, listeners, again, this is um, it's it's enjoyable. It's uh, wonderfully uh, inspiring, actually, to read because 
Uh, somebody took the, the trouble to re-examine these foods that we've all grown to love and grew up on. And, uh, yeah, Grace Lynn, um, you just did a great job. Uh, listeners, mm-hmm. it's called Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. And isn't that the truth? <laughs> Grace, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been fun. So uh, talk to you soon. When's your next book Bye. coming out? <laughs> oh, my next book. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. It takes me a long time. <laughs> hopefully.